Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The Slate Political Gab Fest is brought to you by Harry's, the shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door. Visit harrys.com for $5 off your first purchase with the promo code GABFEST. And by Blue Apron. Blue Apron sends gourmet recipes and all the fresh ingredients you need to make them right to your door. Farm fresh ingredients are perfectly portioned and come with an easy-to-follow recipe card, so you can create a delicious meal in 35 minutes or less. Visit blueapron.com gabfest to get your first two meals free. And by Bonobos. Bonobos takes the pain and hassle out of finding stylish clothes that fit. For a limited time, all new customers can get 20% off their first order at bonobos.com gabfest. That's B-O-N-O-B-O-S dot com gabfest. Discover the difference that an expertly crafted, better-fitting wardrobe can make. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for Thanksgiving week 2015. The thousands were cheering edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. John Dickerson, host of Face the Nation, is here with me. Hello, John. Hi, David. We are before Thanksgiving, so John is still um, he's not as stressed as he tends to get in Thanksgiving because he's a big, big producer of Thanksgiving food. And Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine joins us from New Haven. Hello. Hey. And produces only apple pie. Hey, could we change the title to Thousands Were Not Cheering? Wouldn't that be our no, nice fact check? No, we're going to leave it as Thousands Were Cheering. That's okay. we'll, But we'll leave that exchange in. 
Okay. As long as I get my two cents. Yes. I don't think I don't think after we get done with the Donald Trump segment of the show, I don't think there's going to be any ambiguity about whether we think thousands were cheering. On this week's Gabfest, we will talk about the lies, the thuggishness, the malice of Donald Trump. Then, why has America become so irrational and stone-hearted about Muslims and refugees? And then, should Princeton strip Woodrow Wilson's name from various campus institutions? Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter and Slate Plus. Emily Bazelon on breakfast, the segment you've been <laughs> no, waiting for. I have for. a breakfast dilemma. Emily Bazelon appeals to listeners to help her solve her breakfast dilemma. The breakfast dilemma. If you are not yet a Slate Plus <laughs> member, this is clearly the week to join. Rush to, the... <laughs> Rush to join. Get it by going to slate.com slash Gabfest Plus. Uh, and I have a very special cocktail chatter this week, so that's going to be exciting as well. It's going to just, you got to wait till the end of the show, people. Donald Trump explored new galaxies of loathsomeness this week. He lied and lied again about seeing American Muslims cheering the Twin Towers coming down. He contemplated racial profiling for Muslim Americans, surveillance of Muslim Americans, ID cards for Muslim Americans. He tweeted a made-up statistic implying that most whites who are killed are killed by African Americans. And he encouraged his supporters to harry and perhaps even assault a black heckler at a rally of his. Emily, it was among the most disgusting, vicious, horrible displays of political demagoguery. And I can remember what the hell is going on with Trump. Trump clearly is, you know, mining his his vein of support. And there is a way in which expressing kind of the most scared loathing appeals to some small percentage of the electorate. And given that we're talking about the Republican primaries and not that many people vote in them, and once you kind of slice and dice the electorate down, this is apparently what he thinks is a winning strategy. And so far, he's right in terms of who is leading the polls. And it does not make me feel any better that the candidate who is catching up with him is Ted Cruz, who is kind of a barely more veiled, I mean, okay, a somewhat more veiled version of this. John, what's the early returns on whether this is hurting Trump with voters or helping him? Uh, I don't think it's hurting him with his voters. What's been true of Trump is still true of Donald Trump, which is that he has a core group of supporters who are almost unshakable in their affection for him because he talks about things as he believes them. And so when you ask voters, what is it that you like about Donald Trump? They say he says things other people won't. Because people have felt like politicians lie to them and fuzz up things, one of the great things that Donald Trump's voters like about him is that he says things that upset other people, particularly the media, because they're sick of being lied to by that media. So when he says something that causes controversy, it's not hurting his brand. It's reinforcing his brand. But that brand has a limit and always has, has had a limit in, as long as we've been talking about him, which is in a larger share of the electorate. The reason it hasn't hurt him, although there's not been any voting, of course, the reason it doesn't show up in the polls is that the non-Trump vote is split among you know a, a dozen other candidates. What's interesting about that dynamic, though, is that that dynamic doesn't seem to hold for Ben Carson who has a share of voters who like the same thing about him. He says stuff that that rankles the press and Eastern elites. But he has seen a precipitous 
well, I, I mean, you can argue it's precipitous in some polls, fall, and Ted Cruz has been rising as a result. So why does it hurt Carson but doesn't hurt Trump? Well, I'm not sure exactly what the answer is. I mean, I think the argument is that people respond to this kind of vicious, aggressive demagoguery, that it excites them, that that style is exciting and that the shamelessness of it is exciting. And, John, I mean, I think it's what's so disheartening about what you just said is these are voters who don't are tired of the media lying to them. Donald Trump is telling lies. I mean, it, and, and he is lying and lying and lying in every possible way you can lie and shamelessly and uh, without regret. And and it is so dispiriting to know that that is something that it, that he bears no consequence for, at least with his voters. Maybe. But in but in politics, people have lied and got away with it for a long time in the service of some larger I think goal. The, that I think but you don't the, think this, this is of this, a different the scale order? and oh, nature yeah, of this yeah, is, is, yeah, 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 is yeah. radically yeah, no, no, different. No, no, no. It is, a, it is of a different order, but I mean, it's still, it's not like politicians haven't lied before and gotten approval for it or seen, you know, and it hasn't shaken the faith of their supporters. But I feel like that equivalency makes it seem like all lies are equal. When no, in no, fact, no, lies no, 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 no. You can point out a not. fact without it being equivalent. It's important to recognize the distinction between the two. You can recognize that lying is a symptom of, of our politics and, and not but suggest... they're a form of hatefulness. Hate-mongering. And, and an attempt to, to stir up loathing and 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 cruelty towards a particular groups of Americans that's that's different from from lying about I mean I'm not saying the line about the so the Wallace ca- or line about Cameron Bay is right. okay but I think people would say that the the Wallace campaign in 1968 uh, said things that were not true about African Americans or had a view that appealed to people's baser instincts about African Americans that led to support for Wallace in both parties so I don't. Yeah, I think, totally. That's a fine historical analog. Right. So, Agreed. Um, I just don't want to suggest that this is like that. We don't. Well, we've never seen something like. Well, this let's before. go to one important distinction about this. So I think the Wallace analogy is a very good one. Wallace, if I remember my history correctly, and I probably don't, was a third-party candidate in '68, right? He was not. Well, he started he as started a, a Democrat. He started, he started as a Democrat. He started as a Democrat, but exited, became a third-party candidate, and the Democratic Party, the Humphrey Democratic Party was not particularly hospitable to his views. What is almost more unsettling about what's going on with Trump is, as Emily, you you hinted at with Cruz, is that there is not a lot of disengagement from him. Their disengagement on the specifics of, oh, were Muslim Americans cheering the Twin Towers? Like, people are not saying that. But in terms of the kind of tarring of refugees, the kind of stirring of, of populist nativist sentiment, a lot of the candidates are engaging in it, too. Not at the degree that Trump is, though. Well, except for this is the first instance which Ted Cruz has criticized Trump. His talking about registering uh, Muslims was, was an instance in which Cruz, who's been who's been over backwards to say nothing negative about Trump, disagreed with him on that. So that's one except thing. Except he cloaked th- his disagreement in saying, I'm a big fan of Donald Trump. I mean, I'm not sure. It's, it's such a double kind of message there, right? Well, sure. But my point is that that... that before he wasn't even doing that. Just because Ted Cruz is, is rising doesn't mean that people have, have failed to speak out against what Trump is saying. It's just the people who have aren't doing very well in the polls. Right. Well, the swamp so, is not being drained. There doesn't seem to be... Well, maybe the Republican Party doesn't have an establishment or a kind of old gray figure who can leach this poison from the party. But this is poison. This is poison. And if this continues, I mean, either they win in November and this poison kind of spreads more widely or they lose and there's a some sort of, you know, reckoning with it. But it is, it is, 
I have I do not recall, and maybe I'm maybe I'm being ahistorical here, John. But in our lifetime, I do not recall a party flirting with so much nasty, nasty populism as the Republican Party is doing right what now. What about Pat Buchanan's candidacy and when he wasn't allowed to speak at the Republican convention? Sorry, when there was a fight over that. He was a very small, that was a very, you know, he, Pat Buchanan did okay, but he was in, right, he was in he no sense the, the leader and he, you know, wasn't, he wasn't the phenomenon that any of these candidates is, that Cruz or Carson or Trump is. What is it that Cruz has said that so uh, that makes him like Donald Trump? Christians well, he's only. been talking Christians about Muslim Syrians, distinguishing mm-hmm. between Muslim and Christian Syrians. Right. That's bad. I, the other question I have is whether this is a short-term reaction of fear to the attacks in Paris, and we're going. The country will recover its better instincts and bounce back from it. Um, in a in in the kind of reckoning you're talking about, David, in which. Yes, Trump hangs on to some supporters, but other people really find this loathsome and try to distance themselves. You know, there is a chance. um, I was just reading about the uh, McKinley race in 1996. Sorry, strike that, 1896. You know, there was this argument that McKinley kind of grabbed a moment. There was an anti-Catholic movement and he uh, sort of a secret society that was against Catholics. And because he pushed back against that sentiment, it gave him greater stature. You could imagine that if somebody really confronted Trump on this notion of his anti-Muslim bigotry, which, again, when you look back and say what George W. Bush said in after 9-11, the emphasis was to, to bend over backwards in the opposite direction of the one that Trump is going in. If somebody really stood up and confronted Trump, it could be a moment for, a, for a, an inexperienced senator like Marco Rubio to really show a leadership moment. That would just in pure political terms elevate him and make him look like a strong person. But of course, he's not. He's not about but, to do. But that. there has not also, there hasn't been a confrontation with Trump that anyone's had that has had any, except maybe Carly Fiorina over sexism, com- his misogyny. sexism and his comments about her looks. There has not been a confrontation that anyone's had with Trump that people have come away with, come away triumphant with. And I, well, it's that's not clear not... to me that that anyone can even on this stuff. Yeah. I am so ready for come January. I feel like this whole phenomenon has just worn itself out, and I want it to be over. Well, I don't like what it's telling me about right. Republican voters or the American media or Donald Trump or any of it. Well, it I went just... from, right. It went from the sort of high <laughs> comedy pleasure of the summer to being like, wait, this is still going on, and to now it's turned into something darker. I mean, what what one of the just sick sick moments of this past week was this thing he tweeted about. Black on white and white on black. White, yeah, who, that, saying that eighty-two percent of of uh, murdered whites were murdered by blacks. I mean, it's literally him saying, which it, it, it was him saying that black is white. It was, it was, yeah. it was that was the great moment. It was like, oh my god, he's literally saying black is white. He's literally inverted these statistics. And wait, and he pulled them. They were false statistics from a made-up crime bureau in San Francisco, originally tweeted out by an anti-Semitic Twitter account. Right. The whole thing, right? It's but like so, but so, Emily, Emily, we're in the media. You saw. George Stephanopoulos attempt to confront Trump over his lies about Muslims cheering on 9-11. Trump didn't retreat, reaffirmed his lies. What do you do if you are are in the media, as all three of us are, and somebody can consistently just keeps lying and lies and lies and lies? I mean, do, do you continue to publish those lies as lies? Do you not even dignify them? Do you editorialize about them what what is the right response 
I mean, I think we can jump up and down as much as we want. And the problem is, and didn't Farhad Manju write a book about this a few years ago, that when you repeat lies, they continue to gain steam? Because every time you say what we were just saying, it sticks in people's brains, and then they can't remember what the true version is and what the lie is, and it just gets mixed up. And that is a huge dilemma for covering falsehoods like this, um, that people don't, that the, the truth is not what ultimately registers. It simply, um, in a lot of people's minds, comes down as a controversy. And, and then that is, it just ricochets all over the public consciousness that way. Or the lie that's been exposed or is not not so important when the larger thing that they care about is. So in this case, if you like that Trump is punching the establishment in the nose, and that establishment includes the Republican establishment, the media, then, you know, oh, okay, well, he may have gotten his facts wrong on this thing, but that doesn't matter because I basically agree with him on the big question. Um, Right. I guess what's so hard for me to understand is how you could see Donald Trump's primary importance and message as being one about punching the establishment in the nose as opposed to hate mongering against Muslims and now black people. The idea that that's not the primary lens for understanding him at this point, just I, I just don't get that. For most people, like the debate over whether people were cheering on 9-11 doesn't, they're, they're like, well, why does that matter? They don't see it as a guy mentioning the cheering to make a point about the larger Muslim community. Same with... Yeah, the, right. But yeah. then in order to think that it doesn't matter, you have to really be willing to hate Muslims and see Muslims as traitors to this country in a way that is utterly false. I mean, no, or you can just be agnostic Muslims... and you can be like, well, maybe maybe they were, maybe they weren't. Or if they weren't, why does it matter? But so they it, weren't, he got his facts Of it matters wrong. because they're part of our country. They're citizens here too. Yeah, but, Most but, Muslims denounced the attacks on 9-11. And but, if you miss that historical and sociological fact about the Muslim community, then you're willing to believe all kinds of other things and countenance these scary measures he's talking about taking. So if people have got like a sick kid, are working two jobs, and their husband just got laid off, do you think they're going to sit down and have a, like a long think about the implications of what he's saying? Or they'll just be like, well, they're debating this stupid thing and I got other stuff to do. This is another stupid side debate. I know. But, John, you know how demagogues and fascists and and dictators come through by it's like small lies become big lies. And and, and you appeal. That may be so. But I'm just trying to work. But what we're trying to do is figure out why this exists. So what you say may be true, but but it doesn't seem to me that surprising at all that this hasn't gotten people uh, um, shaken I think for most people in the country, this is just some, you know, silly kind of side question. But when a candidate, when it, when you have somebody who who styles himself as our president, the man who would be our president, and he is out there, yeah, and he's the a, leader of the, you know, one of the two parties in this country, and he's out there lying consistently and lying in a way that is degrading towards a huge population of Americans uh, like it is a it's it's not 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 I'm a not making it more I'm not making it's it a, see, but you're but changing a, what is just an attempt to explain what's going on into a moral argument I, I'm not making a moral argument one way or the other I'm just saying it doesn't surprise me that much that people would would treat this as a, a sideshow I'm not making an argument that it should be or shouldn't be treated as a sideshow there's a difference between analyzing what's going on and then making a value claim about what the candidate's doing Okay. Well, I hope that when they do in January, they decide this is not the America they don't they want to live in. All right. Let's hear from our first sponsor this week, which is Harry's dot com. Harry's 
has just is a great gift source for your holidays. They have these fantastic razors, these supplies that go with razors, and they're classy. There's they're classy enough for Trump probably. They cost you a lot less than you'd pay if you were buying from their competitors. And they have some limited edition gift sets now that deliver amazing quality and value and look fantastic. I got a holiday shaving set from them that had a copper-plated razor handle, five-blade cartridges, shaving cream, and a cool travel kit. And it's a great deal. And if you need a present for a, a brother, for a coworker, for a father, for a son, for a hairy son like me, uh, you should go to harrys.com and get a few gifts and maybe treat yourself to something while you're at it. So we also have a discount of $5 off your first purchase when you go to harrys.com and use our promo code GABFEST. So the fury and suspicion about possible refugee, terrorist refugee infiltration at the United States has not really subsided, even though we're two weeks after the Paris attacks. And there's also seems to be growing anti-Muslim sentiment in some corners of America, as we talked about with, with what Trump is appealing to. There have been disturbing episodes, flights where passengers refused to fly with Muslim-looking fellow passengers. There was an incident in Texas, in Irving, Texas, where an armed group stood outside a mosque and to warn mosque-goers, to signal to mosque-goers that mosque-goers, they weren't going to stand for them Muslimizing America or some, who knows what, they, what they're trying to signal. 31 state governors overwhelmingly Republican, have announced their refusal to take Syrian refugees, although they they actually don't have the authority to refuse to take refugees, but they can certainly make a stand about it. And there have been lots of lies circulating through the media about the number of refugees President Obama proposes to take from Syria, with people saying, oh, he wants to take 250,000, when in fact the number is more like 10,000. People are talking about refugees in very hateful terms, as vermin, as dogs. There was a mayor, a Democratic mayor in Roanoke, Virginia, who looked back fondly on the internment of Japanese and wondered whether we should do the same for Muslims or for Muslim refugees. So, Emily, there has been this citation of some of the pre-World War II language used about Jewish refugees, Jewish refugees who were mostly uh, refused entry into the United States. Is that a fair comparison? Is that a fair analogy? Or is that a cheap it's trick? An awfully, well, it's an awfully tempting one because most of the Syrian refugees are just looking for a place to try to rebuild their lives in the wake of this civil war that their country is going through. And they mean no harm. And they're well-educated and skilled, which gives them a better shot than low-skilled immigrants in succeeding more quickly here. And so there are analogies, I think, to what happened pre-World War II with Jewish refugees because this feels so knee-jerk as a response. Now, I mean, it is also true, obviously, that ISIS is trying to build an Islamic state and that its radical jihadist view of Islam is a driving force. And Judaism at that point in history had not produced anyone (laughs) with any... Well, I mean, whether there were a few Jews out there who had such aspirations, nobody was realizing them, and no one had any power. But people said of Jews then, I mean, I think not untruthfully, that Jews 
tend to were disproportionately socialists and communists and were the driving force right, between and trying to control socialism and communism and wanted to bring system. that to and they wanted to bring that to the United States. And so that there, yeah, there's some of the same true. kind of alarmism about Jewish refugees. That's true. I guess I think of Jews at that time in history as being just so utterly powerless because obviously the rise of Hitler was about to happen and there was nowhere for those people to go. But yeah, no, you're right. The kind of conspiracy notion of Jewish aspirations toward power does have some similarities. And it is a source of national and international shame that more of those people were not saved. I mean, you know, the St. Louis, the boat that went around the world, went to Cuba, went to Canada, went to the United States, was rejected everywhere. There are all kinds of ways in which the European system that had been built up in the wake of World War One and was actually hospitable to taking Russian refugees who are escaping the Bolshevik Revolution, it just totally broke down um, in the 30s because people didn't want the Jews. And so, yes, I think we are seeing a similar moment of international failure to cope with the Syrian refugees. It says something about what the world is just fundamentally unable to cooperate on and, and problems that the world just is refusing to solve. Americans have this notion of we are a land that is always welcoming of immigrants and always welcoming. We actually don't have a great history, in particular with refugees fleeing really tumultuous places. We were bad to Jewish refugees pre-World War II. We were bad to Vietnamese and Cambodian Boat, the boat people in the seventies. We eventually got it together for the boat right, people, right? But we, but, it but it's not. But 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 for all our constant self congratulation about how yes, open harbored we are, we are we don't have a, an incredible record. It's the people who make it are very very glad they made it, made it and are become great advocates for America. But that in general, we are. I think we're not as good as we tell ourselves we are. Right. And whenever we feel threatened, politically speaking, then we our instinct is to just pull up the drawbridge. I mean, that happened in the 20s when there was all kinds of anti-immigrant sentiment in the wake of the Red Scare about communism. Then we were just talking about the 30. I mean, there are these failure moments and we're having another one right now. But but one question I have is I as in my increasingly isolationist self, I don't feel that the the war in Syria is our problem, that the United States should spend all its resources fighting ISIS. We shouldn't be at war there. Nor do I feel that we are largely responsible for the the health and well-being of the refugees from Syria and from ISIS. Given that, am I allow- is that a position I'm allowed to hold? I mean, that's a, it's a slightly cold-hearted position. But are you a Trump voter? I'm a Trump voter. Not slightly. Also, I'm a Trump voter. So what's yeah. supposed to happen to those millions so, of people like, who are fleeing Syria? Can I just interject something? Syria? Can I just interject something? So you've just articulated a position that makes sense to you, and that's essentially, you know, the Donald Trump position and a variety of other people. Let's say you really cared about that. Mm-hmm. You really, really cared about that. And the candidate out there who was making the most noise relative to your claim, which is essentially Donald Trump, syncs with you on that. If you really care about that issue and he's making that point on it, then like other stuff he says won't matter because for you, this is really important. So that's uh, my only point well, is this is an I, illustration think, of a way in no, which a person I think can. The key, the key difference between I, I think it's, a, it's perfectly tenable to have an isolationist position, be skeptical that the U.S. should take refugees. But I, in no sense do I think it is appropriate to talk about people the way that Trump talks I about understand. them, to talk about American citizens but, the way Trump talks about them. I mean, that's I was just sorry, no, 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 totally no, 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 no. So, well, see, I'm, I'm only making my claim is only this. I'm not talking about you in specific, but I'm just saying that in an attempt to illustrate why people can support a person 
if somebody's not paying attention to the other stuff he says and only pays attention to the stuff he says that agrees with them on their isolationist view, you can see how a person can support a candidate who is who they feel is strong on their big issue and not really care about the rest of the stuff. And that's all I'm saying is that even you, who aren't, aren't a supporter and never would be, have a way in which you could imagine your Venn diagrams overlap. And that's the only point about looking at the complexity of the way different voters exist out there. Um, isn't the difference between the Jews that there was an existing long-standing, centuries-long anti-Semitism that was, that was constant and... You don't have that with the Syrians. I mean, the, the, just getting back briefly to that previous analogy. Meaning what? You have plenty of anti-Muslim sentiment in the West. I mean, Muslims are more powerful in the world right now and have been than Jews were then. But certainly the West and its suspicion of Muslims and Arabs, that's pretty strong and virulent. Yeah, and that's no? a good point. That's a good point. Well, I want to go back to, David, your position, which does seem untenable to me. So what do you think is supposed to happen to these millions of Syrians who are fleeing ISIS and fleeing Assad's regime? I would distinguish a, a couple of things. I think the U.S., and I put this in the president's hands, the president has the right to decide how many refugees we are going to take into this country. Congress has Why a right. are you, Mr. Wait, Anti-Executive wait, Power, giving the, all no, no, that no, authority and Congre- to the no, president? Cong- and the Congress has a right to Congress. If Congress wants to overstep them by passing legislation saying they can't, he, the Congress can do that. But essentially, the president, if the president says we're going to take 10,000 Syrian refugees or 100,000, that's great. And we should welcome them with open arms and be great to them. I do not, however, believe that the United States, as a matter of morality or as a matter of public policy, should be responsible for housing and resettling the millions of people who have fled this war. I think we... Well, we, nobody's talking about millions. No, no, but... but so, so you could say... But should I mean, we be part so, of so building you could, an you international could say, Do we take one refugee or do we take all of them? Like, we all agree that it's somewhere on the continuum right. of where we take them. So, I would fall no, on the... I don't like the, this framing. I think that we should be talking about building an international system for helping people or figuring out how to stem the flow by beating ISIS in Syria, which I don't know how to do that, and I feel like nobody really does, and that is deeply troubling. But well, it seems like there are sort of two ways to go at this to be completely reductionist about it. One is to change the conditions that are causing people to flee, and two is to help the people who are fleeing and, and make that a problem well, that the whole world well, is on board. I guess part of my problem is that... The third is that absent... Well, absent... You're not going to get international consensus on a framework... Because you could imagine a situation in which somebody who says we want an international consensus on a framework for how to deal with refugees is actually pushing the problem off and not dealing with it. It makes it sound like they're dealing with it, but they're not. I mean, there's an acute issue here that needs to be dealt with. And it seems to me you could make the argument that, well, do essentially what Merkel has done, is say there's an acute situation and we must step up and lead. That is an option that's open to the United States. That's a third option that's open. I actually don't. I have not heard a single thing that anyone has said about winning the war against ISIS that makes any sense to me. There is, there's, if Russia wants to go in and put, you know, a million ground troops into Syria, good luck to them. They, if they want to fight that battle, that is just fine. If they want to do it, I don't see anything. I do not think it is in America's national interest to organize a coalition of hundreds of thousands of our troops to go and and get into a five-part civil war in Syria to try to defeat ISIS. I don't think it would work. I don't think. We have. And then I don't we'll think it would be a waste of money. Yeah, we will have. Well, right. And so, therefore, I yeah. just don't. I simply don't think we have. We have an answer on the fundamental questions about what should be done about ISIS and and people who 
claim they have that answer, I think, are diluting and lying and offering simple solutions that don't really exist. Given that, to me, the refugee problem then becomes the problem of the people who live near there. And we can offer them arms, and we can offer them some some money here and there. And but talk and about ineffective here solutions. and there. But, but, there are millions of people in Turkey and Lebanon and Jordan. But this is not here and there. Well, this then is you a, know I what? Mean, then Turkey and Lebanon and Jordan and Russia and Iran and Iraq can, if they decided that their national interests are so threatened by this, that they can come together and they can put something together to try to defeat ISIS and try to end this refugee flow. But we're you not going to be able to Europe, do it. Which is both having hundreds of thousands of people and Europe, sure. show up on Europe, its borders it. and also to, right. Great, so, great, great for you. I don't do know it. why we have to stay out of this. I mean, there because are because it's have not been, our fight. No, it beca- well, the, but so let's separate the fight with ISIS from the global solution for dealing with the flow of refugees. Because that second question is one that international frameworks and agreements and conventions should be able to address and has in the past and did actually eventually come together to help the Vietnamese boat people. There were a million and a half of those people and they were overwhelming Thailand and Singapore and other countries in the regions. There was an international conference. Those countries said, you know what, unless you guys in the West help us more, we are closing our borders. The West turned over a lot of aid. And then the United States resettled about a million of those people eventually. That was our There's war. also a way in we which we broke that. That was our war. Okay, that maybe that is the key distinction to you. I don't think that is the key distinction. I think what matters is thinking through in some kind of systematic way the difference between short-term provision for refugee aid, in which case there's data sh- suggesting that you are right, that it is actually a fine idea for people to temporarily resettle in in neighboring countries because it makes it easier to go back eventually. And in fact, half of refugees do go back within seven years. But then you've got everybody else, people who really do need to permanently resettle. And the West is is actually better at that, not just the United States. You can include Australia, New Zealand, Europe, all these countries that actually are have growing populations and need new energy that immigrants bring anyway. And that is the kind of global thinking systematic solution that, yeah, Merkel has been leading on, but she has not had a whole lot of company because nobody else really wants to step up and take responsibility. And that we should be part of that in a bigger way. President Obama, 10,000 people is hardly enough. It is not enough at all. And now we're having this huge wave of anti-immigrant sentiment in the face of that small offer. John, what is it fair for people, whether they're political candidates or individuals to say about refugees? Well, I think the what I think you would say if you were trying to find the sweet spot would be to say recognize that people are scared about people coming from the hotbed of ISIS's growth. Everybody now agrees that Syria is the the main problem for ISIS. And we know two things. This is the country where ISIS is, and we know that there's an active plan by ISIS and other terrorists to have people come into the United States to kill Americans. And so people are, are you understand the fear, and then you make the case that, uh, that the refugees, it turns out, are the ones who are the most scrutinized of all people who come to the United States, and that the real thing to be worried about, and this is why it does matter to the United States, is that the visa waiver countries, the two dozen or so European countries um, where people can come to the United States just as tourists, that's the influx and flow into the United States that most worries the people who study this. Because in that case, it's just people who are coming through with passports. That's a much more worrying thing because there's not as much scrutiny as for a refugee. All right. 
Let's hear from our second sponsor, Blue Apron. You need to know how to cook. Cooking at home means eating healthier and saving money instead of ordering expensive takeout again. But where do you start? Blue Apron has you covered for less than $10 per meal. Blue Apron delivers all the fresh ingredients you need to create home-cooked meals. Just follow the easy step-by-step instructions. Each meal can be prepared in 40 minutes or less. No overwhelming trips to the grocery store. No more sad takeout. And no matter your dietary preferences, Blue Apron makes it a breeze to discover and prepare dishes like curry and coconut pork soup with honey nut squash and lacinato kale. Love lacinato kale. Or salmon with sweet potato parsnip and cranberry hash. That's very seasonal. You can do that right in your own kitchen. Cook with ingredients you've never used before, like watermelon radishes, farro, and purple potatoes. And recipes are between 500 to 700 calories per portion. Delicious and good for you. Right now, you can get your first two meals for free at blueapron.com gabfest. That's blueapron.com gabfest. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. It's not just Yale in the Ivy League <laughs> that is in a state about its relationship to segregation history. Not just Calhoun College that's making headlines. Princeton University, which is the, I always thought is the sort of the iviest of Ivy League universities, is in the middle of a boisterous debate about whether to take Woodrow Wilson's name off a building and off their School of International Affairs and to pull down a large painting of him, I think. So it has opened a, a pretty fascinating, and I, and I think it's a much less clear-cut debate than I expected when I first looked at this topic. Certainly not as clear-cut as, I think, the Calhoun College at Yale discussion we've, we've had in bits and pieces. Wilson was the giant of Princeton history. He was a university president who then, of course, became the nation's president, a progressive icon who also was a willing enforcer of segregation. He resegregated the federal workforce, among other things. He screened Birth of a Nation at the White House. He was not a great progressive on issues of race. So should his name be removed, John Dickerson, from the Woodrow Wilson School? I tend to be against this mostly, and so uh, no, because I think that the it becomes a monument to something else, which is which I'm a fan of, which is like the complexity of history, and that people were uh, need to be judged within their times, and that that's not just a way to let them off the hook. Quite the opposite, it goes back to the point you were making earlier about the seeds of fascism growing in a time of of ignorance or easy solutions. I'm not signing up with whether you're right or wrong about that now, but the point is that the point of history and and seeing the shortcomings of people even who were lionized in the time, we had this conversation about Thomas Jefferson earlier, is that it, it makes you and engages you, especially at a university where you're supposed to be doing this. You're supposed to be engaging with with issues and complexity. And when you erase it, you kind of go around that and that seems to me at a university in particular you don't want to do although I totally obviously recognize particularly for some reason Calhoun feels a lot worse than Wilson. Right Cal- well why, why <laughs> is it let's talk about uh, the Cal- so Calhoun is there's a college mm-hmm. at Yale right named I mean, after John C. Calhoun a South Carolina senator and there's of course uh, uproar and weird at Yale. stained glass images of him with slaves and like some of them have have like been cut out in strange ways it's very odd why is that different i mean i have thoughts but emily do do you want to hazard that 
Well, I want to challenge John's premise. I don't think renaming a building means erasing history. And I don't actually think the students and other people who are calling for that mean to erase history either. They have been quite explicit. They want us to rethink history. So I am confident that Yale is going to rename Calhoun College. And when they do it, I expect them to put up a big plaque that says, for how whatever it is, a hundred years, this college was named after John C. Calhoun. He helped come up with the racist justification for slavery. Here is the stuff he said. Here's why we took his name down. Wilson is a more mixed figure, and we should talk about him because he both accomplished gains for the progressive era that helped make the government more of an ally in general for poor people and was a real racist who set back black people, particularly in the civil service, in a way that there was a very powerful New York Times op-ed about this week from the grandson of someone whose life was essentially ruined by Wilson's racist policies. So I, I feel like one way to think about this question is if you have had a building named after you for 100 years, or in Wilson's case at Princeton, it's more like 60 years, why do you get to have it in perpetuity? Why is that the way that we preserve a debate about history? In fact, doesn't that do more to kind of erase complexity and cover over these bumps along the way than a conversation about taking the name off the building does? It seems to me like the conversation about taking the building, the name off is when we start to grapple with the complexities of history. Well, but if your standard is, if you're constantly every hundred years saying, look, this person from a hundred years ago failed to live up to the moral standards we set for ourselves today. He was he was so a creature of his own time. He, he was not ahead of the curve and therefore he has to come down. So everything has to, every name will come off every building no, no, and we'll have to redo it every 60 years. Calhoun are worse than not ahead of the curve. Calhoun right? is okay, a, so but Calhoun is a, a different, slope Cal, argument. Calhoun is a different, Calhoun is different. I mean, Calhoun, I think the, the issue with Calhoun is that I am not, enough of a student of the Senate, John probably is, to know what Calhoun's great accomplishments are. But Calhoun was certainly the principal intellectual architect for the, or one of them for justifying slavery. And therefore, like it seems to me he, using a word I used last week, he's a villain of history. Wilson is, a, is just an, a figure of ambiguity. He's somebody who accomplished enormous good and enormous good for Princeton in particular. And also, as we all do, did did bad things along the way. No, no, would we I be having I... this discussion if the names were taken down? Or would we have just passed we, on we to something else? We are having this discussion because people are talking about taking the names down. Did you? I mean, I didn't know any of this stuff about Wilson. When no, this, this is, that's the best Princeton part. started a couple weeks ago, right. I was it's like, the best part. what? Right, but that's right. what's so, so great. That's so we're great. not erasing history and talking about taking well, the names down. We are like but if you mining t- then history t- But if you then take history. the name down, you are erasing history. You, that, you, I just think that is totally ridiculous, honestly. Why would calling it the W.E.B. Du Bois Institute be a truer, better, more honorable thing? Du Bois? You know, clearly a great American, a great intellectual leader. But why is naming after him be a better thing than naming after Wilson? That seems to me ludicrous. Because you you acknowledge and recognize and talk about the history and our different interpretations of people's roles and who we want to honor in the process of the renaming. And it doesn't go away. It's not like it becomes a tiny little footnote in the history of course it does. If you pull his if you pull his name off it, if you pull his name off it, you're saying this person is such a moral villain. That we couldn't even have a building named after, even though he was the only president who went to our university, even though he was the president of the university. We can't name something after him. He's such a villain. So don't pretend that if you pull his name off it, that he's still he's still, uh, you know, held up and and admired. That is saying that he's a criminal. It's it's saying he's equivalent to Calhoun. 
you are conflating different arguments. First, there's this argument about in these moments of rethinking who gets their name on a big fat building and institution, are we having a meaningful conversation about history or are we erasing the past? That's one set of arguments. Then there's this other slippery soap question about which of these historical figures do we really want to wash our hands of? And does Wilson fit into that category, which is basically a slippery slope argument. Those are two different things. I am arguing that we are not erasing history by having a big conversation about whether Wilson's name belongs on the International Affairs School or whatever it is at Princeton, because I think that's actually educating people. And I don't think it turns into a footnote. I think it turns into an event that helps people un- be- have I, a better, richer understanding I, of that Emily, history I in both cases. I absolutely agree that the conversation about it is is very useful. And I totally agree. I did not know this history about Wilson. It is, it's been edifying in every respect. I'm, I'm so glad that this has come up. But I hope that the solution is not, therefore, to then yank his name off the building. I think it's great because to have the discussion. Because you're making a value judgment that he did more good than evil, in your view. Well, and, I mean, because I I'm making, that, I'm, I'm like, making a value judgment that says that. like that, that that if Wilson doesn't qualify for a building at Princeton dedicated to international affairs, then we are going to have a hell of a time naming anything. We're not going to be able to name the GabFest studio after John Dickerson because John Dickerson did something. To, you know, terrible ones to somebody. I, I mean, don't think it John Dickerson to... is equivalent to. I'm arguing against false equivalence. I wasn't today. arguing that the danger of erasing history exists now in the in the context of this argument. That would be silly. The question is whether you ever remember crossing the Aqueduct Bridge when you lived in Washington. You don't because nobody remembers what the Aqueduct Bridge was. It's the Key Bridge. But for a long time, for uh, more than a hundred years, names. So then, but John, this is an argument for not taking down a, consi- a single Confederate statute anywhere. Well, no, now, now you're slippery sloping. Now you're slippery sloping. Now you're slippery sloping. No, I'm, we, if you're saying you the changing a name, erasing history, then we have to keep and, every and bad Wilson? name. Wilson? No, I don't know that no, that's it's the case like, at all. It's like that so you can... explain to me why it's not. Why is changing, why is taking down a Confederate statue... Not forget the moral. Wait, do you think? Do you honestly works. think? Do you honestly think that that a, that a statue of uh, wait, well, who's the, who's the who's that great Confederate villain who has a statue that you Nashville? chattered on? Oh, uh, oh, uh, we've all forgotten. You mean in the in the capital in the capital or the one you no, chattered you're about? In the one I chattered like in Kentucky and all the yeah. leader of the KKK. Okay, like, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. So, so that the, taking down a statue of that guy or taking down a statue of Jeff Davis is the same as as unre- as renaming a college at Princeton that's named after no, Woodrow again, Wilson. No, again, you're conflating my Wait, points. I, I want to have two No, because you were talking about erasing history and how nobody remembers whether the key bridge was once the aqueduct bridge. And so well, I, my m- point is that if you take that literally, just let me finish. If you take that literally, then you say it erases history every time we change a name of anything. And then you get how do you not back yourself into the corner of we can't erase any name? So Isn't every time we change a name either an opportunity for rethinking history or an erasure like i don't i literally don't understand what for, forget who is worse and who counts as a villain i just want to talk for a minute about this point of history and reinterpreting history i right. don't understand what you're saying right well actually let me try and actually say what i was saying instead of um, <laughs> interrupting me with what you think i was saying so what i'm saying is obviously we're having a conversation about this now so we're not that wasn't what i was talking about my question is once you've done it and time passes and everybody forgets that it was ever named anything previously are you then still having the same level of conversation or are you passing a building named after a new person and you've stopped having the conversation. Of course you have. And there may be a plaque. but And then that's actually not a bad 
I like I I'm that I find that idea potentially attractive as a as a way to solve this. But I think it would be um, I think it would be against experience to imagine that school students would pass a building with a new name in 10, 15 years or days and remember that it had a previous name and therefore then uh, wrestle with the complexities of the history of that person. Now, having said that, obviously there are some cases in which the person was so loathsome within either their own time or now that we'd have to rethink that or you'd have to say, look, this is a big one and this can't stand. Yeah, I mean, I... I mean, I I think when we leave the people's names on the building, we tend to whitewash the complications and the bad parts of their history because in order to justify naming the school Woodrow Wilson, we have to lionize people. And that seems to me just empirically a greater, bigger problem. It is not empirically a bigger problem. It's it's How something can you, you do. That? We never who talked well, well, about Woodrow Wilson's do you wanna, racist Do you want to name anything? Anything? Well, do you, do you, by I that standard, I, you really would not name anything because no, every I single person. No, I have a different idea about this, which is that maybe people get named something for some amount of time, and then we ch- like who cares if we change the name of every single residential college at Yale? Why would that be such a terrible thing? They just have new names because at the moment they're all named after white men, old dead white men, and maybe we've just had a time where we're ready to just well, change that's everything. A separate I'm argument. not. That is not going to happen. I'm not talking about that as a real thing, but I don't see why the default has well, because, to be that we you know keep why, people's Emily, names you know forever. Why? You know why? Because we want to remember why? our history. We want to remember tradition because it's important. And because Woodrow Wilson is a morally complex figure and who, who, who I completely agree with you that this discussion has been been really valuable and has has made me think about Wilson in new ways and and, and in and in more subtle ways and I'm I'm thrilled that they had this discussion I think that that is a, a great value but to pull him off and to sort of say you got your 60 years let's move on seems to me to 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 say that you know that that we can't live with the ambiguities of history and that we in order to do that we have to pick we have to pick someone who is who we are morally comfortable with in our moment. And here's another reason you should you should really particularly want and perhaps go and put lay flowers at the base of Woodrow Wilson is that he was a big big proponent of international structures yes, to deal no, with that's complicated a big thing, projects. The of Nations. He and that there that. was a history in America at one point where people cared enough about that that they made like a big deal and had a big conversation about that. And so that in fact it's a part of our our tradition to be in favor of big international structures. All right. Uh, so what about <laughs> what about this? I'm not actually I'm not conceding that I think Princeton should keep Wilson's name. But if they did, wouldn't your argument then also support the idea of having a big plaque or a big day every year or something that talks about Woodrow's w- w- Woodrow's it's not a friend of mine talks about Wilson's complex history on race and that keeps alive what people have been learning about him in the last two weeks? Because my fear is that if they keep his name, then this conversation goes away and everyone forgets about this like little bubble of Wilson revisionist history and goes back to just lionizing him. Remember, there's a huge mural of Woodrow Wilson at Princeton. And also there's a residential college named after him. Good. He was the president of the university and the president of the United States. That makes sense. If you were a black student and you were thinking about the way in which he had disenfranchised a lot of black civil service workers and taken away their jobs, you might not feel so great about living in that. I I mean, I if I were a black student, I, I would I would never 
presume to speak about what I would be like as a black student. But like it is no America is a country with a tremendous racist history. Every single so person I'm who asking, was a leader do you think who, in who was college, le- they should have. a class Yes, of about course the bad they should. Style. Of course they should. Of course that that they should, you know, make a habit of educating people about who, you know, these are the people who are the founders of our institution. We, you should know about them. Absolutely. I went to St. Uh, Albans School in Washington, D.C. We learned a lot about who St. Albans was, you know. That is a that seems to me like a <laughs> really a normal Saint Albans, just like a like a really really lame 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 early British so saint. The uh, the um, it was a Roman soldier. I think I, I've forgotten I, it all. I feel like the beginning of the tour at Monticello has wrestled with this and found a way, maybe not a perfect way, but has at least tried to wrestle with this. Which is the very beginning of the Monticello tour talks about Sally Hemings and the fact that the man who wrote the Declaration of Independence had slaves and couldn't have succeeded without them and talks about the burial plot there where where his African-American descendants are allowed to be buried or are buried. Now, I mean, now they are, they, yeah. Now they are. So they try uh, to to get this into the history of the place. Now, obviously, nobody's going to rename Monticello, so they had to find some accommodation. But I don't know if that's not the beginning of a model for how to deal with this. Yeah, that's a good idea. I like that idea of Princeton putting aside some resources to problematizing the memory of Woodrow Wilson, I love this, at least. I love this. This is one of my favorite discussions because it was such a Thanksgiving-style discussion. It was very much this is the, the fight that that young young uh, Princeton alums are going to be having with their codger Princeton uh, elderly relatives at this Thanksgiving. I'm playing the role of codger in that. Easily. Also, we're sponsored this week by Bonobos. Every guy wants to look his best, especially if you're a guy who went to Princeton, I bet. Few want to put in the effort to maintain a stylish wardrobe. It is a huge hassle to maintain a stylish wardrobe. As I, Emily called me out at our live show last week because my shirt had holes in it, which we, <laughs> I thought were cats and she claimed were moths. No, but, I had no idea. They just look like moth holes to me. The yeah. cat explanation made sense for the pattern. It could have totally been a paw. Bonobos takes the pain and hassle out of finding stylish clothes that fit and do not have cat holes in them. Clothes for any body type, any fit preference. You can easily browse online through top quality styles in your home. They're free and easy shipping and returns. There's personable and fast service. And you can try clothes on at one of their guide shops before you buy. Bonobos offers a full line of stylish men's clothing, all meticulously crafted for a better fit. Shirts for the office or the weekend. Suits that fit like they've been tailored just for you. Jackets and outerwear, ties, belts, and shoes, even golf clothes. You can look stylish, feel comfortable, and pick your perfect fit. For a limited time, all new customers can get 20% off their first order when they go to bonobos.com slash gabfest. That's B-O-N-O-B-O-S dot com slash gabfest. Discover the difference that an expertly crafted, better-fitting wardrobe can make. Let's go to cocktail chatter. When you're... uh recovering john do you or do you want emily to go? emily will go first emily why don't you chatter first thank you thanksgiving chatter i was really taken this week with um a feature in new york magazine about a block of bedford stuyvesant in brooklyn they went really deep into the history of this block and there's all this amazing stuff online about the people who live there and how the neighborhood has changed and the real estate prices which are just like have doubled in the last five years, I think. It's such a great example of just like going really deep in this very local way. And um, yeah, I really recommend it if you haven't taken a look at that. 
And now I'm going to segue, I'm sure, awkwardly into a celebration of my own block. We have this problem on my block of New Haven, which is that the um, they paved over some catch basins for water several years ago, and there's been standing water on the block and whenever it rains, and especially in the summer, it's gross because it starts getting smelly. And then in the winter, it freezes over into ice. And after basically like... I don't know, six to nine months of civic action in the form of lots of emails to the city. We had a meeting over the summer with a lovely couple of city engineers. They walked the whole block. They made this incredibly detailed map of all the gradients and said, yes, in fact, it had been badly paved over the last time. And they just in the last three days stripped the street, dug a huge hole outside my house, put in two new catch basins. And while we were taping, they have been repaving the street. And this is like the most glorious example of incredibly local activism. I feel very grateful to my neighbors for having um, cooperated Wait, on this. And literally thank you to the chatter about the paving of your yes, street. I did. That was literally I your did. cocktail chatter. That is my cocktail chatter. I'm going to be talking about it all weekend. It's the most exciting thing. It's like watching incredibly. I, pe- I was just reading in Cosmo. are my street. I can't at believe gym, it. At the gym, I was reading at Cosmo about how you can make yourself interesting. And it was one of the pieces of advice. <laughs> and this was, is like the anti-example. Before you go out of the house, of think of that. the most interesting thing you did this week. <laughs> Yeah, this is definitely the best thing that has happened to me. uh, My neighbors have been emailing me like, oh, my God, I can't believe this is happening. It's like, you know, we we like petitioned to get our street repaved in a really meaningful way for us. So I can imagine the other people at the cocktail party getting in the car to drive home. The door closes. (laughs) Oh, my God. She went on for an hour about her street. (laughs) There are men up right outside my house right now fixing my street. Oh, my God. It's the best thing ever. Uh, John, what's your Sorry you what's haven't experienced such, such glory and happiness. We live in D.C. The chances of our streets getting repaired. Actually, you know, the funny thing is <laughs> that my street right now is not, is, it's the opposite of getting repaired. They're doing some other kind of work, and the entire street has been a mess Actually, for like that's a month. true of my street, too. Yeah. <laughs> that is also true of my street. What's my street happening? is closed. Yeah, what, I didn't even think about it. Yeah, you I can't drive t- in my alley. You, we can't take the dogs on the walks because all these like loud machines and cars and huge trucks driving fast around. It's really a... Super well, I tragedy. wish you a better civic The struggle civic is future. indeed real. Uh, okay. <laughs> so my chatter is about um, diaries and memoir and this and John Meacham's new book about George Herbert Walker Bush, which is um, really actually a delight to read as bi- biography. You know, some political books and some biographies read like basically the um, list of ingredients in a s- cereal box and they're just a mess. And this one has been a joy to read. And one of the reasons it's a joy to read is not only because it's well-written, but also because George Bush was a constant diarist. And I feel like his diaries may be the last... He was really honest with his diaries. So Meacham will write about an episode and say, talk about the spin the campaign was giving. And and then he'll quote from the diary in which George Bush is like, oh, I was incredibly nervous about this. And it was really everything was going poorly. And I wasn't sure. And I felt like I was being cut out. And it's just this honest view of a guy who's a human being. And I feel like we're going to lose that. I feel like nobody I'm sure Barack Obama, who does keep diaries and journals, for some reason, I feel like the leg, the shaping of one's own legacy has become such a part of and there's nothing legacy burnishing about 
the quotes from his diary, other than they make him look human. I mean, he admits in his diary that he knew more about Iran-Contra than he said at the moment, which does not look good for him. About the arms for hostages piece, not the giving the money to the Contras piece. But it looks really bad for him and because he's basically saying we can't tell the country right now. That's a bad, very bad thing as far as, far as the view of history looks um, back on it. But it, um, I feel like everything is so post, uh, the spin continues after you leave. And so we're, not, we're just not going to see diaries in which presidents in real time expressed doubt, fear, mistakes, loss of self-confidence, anger. And it's a shame because uh, we'll miss the texture of history. That's a really good point. Uh, my chatter is I, I'm here to report a victory, a triumph that's slightly mine. But as those of you who are frequent listeners to the show know, one of my um, obsessions is Friday Night Lights. And that one of my one of the, the ideas that I've been playing with in the back of my head, I've been entertaining for years, has been the Friday Night Lights musical. I'm here to report that the Friday Night Lights musical is happening. There is a team out in Los Angeles that made the OC musical. They are now making a Friday Night Lights musical. It will play for one night in Los Angeles in 2016. Genius bit of casting. Coach Taylor is going to be played by the guy. You, John, don't look at me so expectantly. You're oh. not a fan. Uh, <laughs> well, Coach I... Taylor is going to be played by Jason Street, Emily. Oh, that's awesome. So Scott Porter, the actor who played Jason Street, is playing Coach Taylor. On TV. He, uh, yeah, he played Jason Street on TV, but he's going to play Coach Taylor in this musical. Um, I love it. I cannot wait. If you are a producer of the show, um, you have David to. wants tickets. And I actually, in honor of this chatter, I'm wearing my Friday Night Lights shirt today because I bought a shirt from the set of Friday Night Lights. If you're in Los Angeles, you got to go see it, and then you have to get me a ticket so I can come see it with you. Our intern is El Biscard Church. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. The GabFest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our show page is Slate.com slash GabFest, which has links to what we talked about today. Our Facebook page, Facebook page, it's facebook.com slash GabFest, and our Twitter feed is at SlateGabFest, and our email address is GabFest at Slate.com. So if you cannot find a way to reach us, you really are not trying very hard, because there are a lot of ways to reach us. Please subscribe to the GabFest in iTunes and leave a comment and rating. For Emily, Bazelon, and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. We'll talk to you next week. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and I'm host of Amicus. Slate's podcast about the law and the U.S. Supreme Court. We are shifting into high gear, coming at you weekly with the context you need to understand the rapidly changing legal landscape. The many trials of Donald J. Trump, judicial ethics, arguments and opinions at SCOTUS. We are tackling the big legal news with clarity and insight every single week. New Amicus episodes every Saturday, wherever you listen.